Good morning, church. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you're a guest, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. We're always excited to have guests with us. Let us know how we can help you, how we can assist you. If you would like to know more about our church, we would love to help you um, navigate through what's going on here. Uh, also, you can look on our website. Um, you can find information. Um, we are in a new series this morning. We're starting a new series, The One and Others of the Bible. Um, as a matter of fact, it's not John 3. It's First John, so just First John. Um, but we are in a series, Love One Another. Um, it's the one another of the Bible. We start with love one another. So it will be five one another's in the month of March. And then in April, we'll do lessons from the psalm. And so we'll focus on five psalms. And then in May, we'll start the book of First Samuel, the book of First Samuel. So just to help you understand the trajectory of our preaching schedule, uh, what we'll be focusing on. So be praying for us as we study, uh, praying for me as I study. Um, so with that said, turning your Bibles to First John chapter 3, First John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. When you've arrived to the text, say word. Can you please stand? We stand out of reverence to God's holy and righteous word. First John three, nineteen through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he had commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abide in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, speak to our hearts this morning. Teach us what it means to love you and to love one another. God, give us a greater intensity, a greater passion and fervency to love one another, God. Our horizontal relationship reflects our vertical relationship. How we treat people, Father, shows how we view you. So God, I pray that our hearts are excited to learn more about loving you and loving one another. So God, teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not and give us what we do not have. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Huh? Yeah, I said that already, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jerry. Um, so what we, what we have here before us is a very important passage of Scripture. And Tertullian of Carthage mentioned specifically about how he came to know the Lord. And he said it wasn't because of the arguments of the early church and how they would give reasons for their faith. It wasn't because of that, but it was because of their love for one another. 
Tertullian, this is what he mentions. He says, but they demonstrated something I didn't have. The thing that converted me to Christianity was the way they love each other. You see, Jesus himself mentioned this to us. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That you love one another. And notice verse 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is telling us the greatest platform for evangelism is not tracts, although that's very powerful. It's not knocking on doors and sharing Christ with people, although that can be effective. The greatest tool that we have for evangelism is the love that Christians have for one another. The, the way we treat one another. And this is exactly what Tertullian was mentioned, mentioned to us. It was the love fast among Christians that led him to Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what we have this morning. John is writing about the love that we ought to have for one another. Now, there are five statements throughout the book of 1 John that we should understand. In other words, John gives us five reasons throughout his little epistle as to why he wrote the book of 1 John. And I want to give it to you. First, he writes so that his joy may be completed. And he says that, says that to us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. Two, he writes to encourage the believers to not sin. If you're a believer, don't sin. Stop sinning. He says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Three, he writes to remind the believers of the truth. What is the truth? The word of God. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, 4, he writes to warn the believers of false teachers. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, and 5, he writes so that the believers may know that they know that they know that they have eternal life. And this last one is the most important one for John. It's the one he writes the most about in 1 John. So much so that John gives the believer three tests that they must know and take to know that they are a believer. What are the three tests? First is the truth test. And he tells them that they must be characterized by people of truth. They must know the truth, the truth of God's word. But we cannot say that we are of God and we do not like the Bible. We cannot say that we love Jesus, but you know what? The Bible was written by man, so I cannot trust it. No, true salvation is saying I trust Jesus and I trust his word. I trust truth. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Whosoever say, says, I know him, but does not keep his commandment, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Nine times in the book of 1 John, he mentions the word truth. So there is the truth test. How do you know you're a believer? By your love for the truth. Do you love the Bible? Do you love the word of God? Are you desiring to obey the word of God? Second test is the sin test. The sin test. 
For him, he says that as a believer, we should not continue in sin. In other words, John is not saying that we are perfect beings, that we will never sin. But he's saying as a Christian, habitually, we should not desire to sin. In other words, for a believer, sin should be like a tag behind in, in, your, in your shirt, right? Do you remember this? Do you remember that used to happen? There's this tag on the inside of your shirt. And, and, and as you're walking, a brand new shirt, man, and you're like, oh, this is annoying. So, you, so you're like doing this and you're doing that. And eventually you get so annoyed that you reach behind and you try to pull it, but you ruin your shirt by doing that, right? It, there is a sense of sin should aggravate us. It should aggravate us. I was sharing this with Brother Yui this morning. I said, Brother Yui, you remember back in the days they used to have the tag in the back? For some reason now they have the stamps, so it's not aggravating us anymore. And I said, Brother Yui, you remember that used to happen? And Brother Yui's like, yeah, they put stamps back then. And all of a sudden, Brother Yui's doing this. I'm like, why are, you, why are you doing this, Brother Yui? He's like, well, now, now I'm, I'm aware of it, Brother Kevin. I'm aware of it back there, you know. But, but this is the idea, right? The idea for us is that sin can annoy us, and it should annoy the believer. It should feel like a tag that we're re- willing to rip it off and pull it because it's annoying us. And this is exactly what John says. It's the sin test. How are you with sin? Are you comfortable with sin? Or are you so annoyed with it? If you're annoyed with it, it's proof of your salvation. It shows that God has done something amazing in you. This is what John says. First John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. This is the sin test. And third, the love test. The love test. In other words, John is saying, if you are a true believer, you will love people. And especially other Christians. Especially other Christians. Come in closer and write this down if you can. If you are a Christian, your vertical relationship with God must show itself in your horizontal relationship with others. Do not say, I love God, but I hate people. No. You love God. You love his greatest creation. People, and especially Christians. The word love in First John is mentioned 32 times. To give you a picture of how much John wants us to see this, 32 times. So this will be our focal point this morning. This morning, I want to give you three reasons why we should love each other. Three reasons why we should love each other from 1 John chapter 3. Reason number one, we are given assurance of our salvation because of our love for one another. I am not saying, and John is not saying, because you love one another, that makes you save. Right? There is this merit. I'm, I, I, if, if I do this, then God will give me salvation. No, it's, it, it's actually the opposite. Because you are saved, you will do these things. You're, you're not doing it to be saved. You're doing it because you are saved. It's just an indication of, what, of the work that God has done in you and through you, right? So if you have eternal life, you will love people. 
And it gives you this great assurance. We see this in verses 19 through 22. We are given boldness in prayer because of our love for one another. This is a beautiful thing here. The apostle John connects the sense of loving people to prayer. The reason why we have no confidence and perhaps the reason why we doubt in our prayer life is because we don't love people like we ought to. Do you get it? Do you doubt? How is your prayer life? Well, look at the way you love people. Because if you love people, that would give you a boldness and confidence in your prayer life. We see this in verses 21 through 22 and 3. We are given a greater delight for obedience because of our love for one another. As I love people, there is a greater delight in obeying God. Do you get it? Loving people and loving Christians is a very important thing. So I pray this year you will make it a priority, a discipline to love people around you. We live in a culture that says if people get on your nerve, if people aggravate you, cut them off. We live in a very narcissistic culture, selfish culture that has infiltrated the local church. So the moment someone gets on your nerve, what you say is, I don't love them. I have nothing to do with them. I'll just walk away from them. Friends, it should not be so for a Christian. By doing that, it will hinder your prayer life. By doing that, it will hinder your spirituality. By doing that, it will hinder your obedience to God. There's a mandate here to love deeply. So search your heart. There's any animosity toward another Christian here, then you seek forgiveness. You seek forgiveness. So point number one here. One, we are given assurance of our salvation through our love for one another. Coming, coming closer, coming closer. One of the most detrimental things for a Christian is doubt. It is painful. And as a Christian, we doubt, especially doubt in our salvation. It is one of Satan's greatest plot to have you doubting your salvation on a consistent basis. A doubting Christian is not a confident Christian. A doubting Christian is not one who approaches the throne room of God boldly. When you notice any relationship, people with relationship with God, they, they have a sense of boldness and confidence. Boldness and confidence. A doubting Christian does not have a sense of boldness and confidence. So it's very detrimental. Now, I want to say this to you, coming close and don't miss this. It is very important for us to be introspective of our salvation. What do I mean? To test. John gives, gives us the three tests. So we, we are called on a consistent basis to test, to make sure that we are saved, but not to doubt to the point that we, there is a sense of condemnation. 
But not just John. Peter actually encourages us to test our salvation when he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. But Peter is saying, test. Make sure that you're saved. Paul says to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Well, Kevin, what's the difference between that and doubting? Doubting leads to a sense of condemnation. Testing leads to a greater confidence in God. So if I, if I test, as Peter is saying, to test my salvation and my election, as I, as I do it, as Paul says, to work out my salvation in fear and trembling, the result will be a greater passion for the glory of God. But if I doubt my salvation, the result will be condemnation. Not a sense of boldness. Friends, when we observe very carefully what the Apostle John is doing here, he is doing something incredible. And he's turning to the Christians and he's saying to the Christians, coming closer, do not be condemned. Do not allow your doubt to condemn you. And there are several things that condemn a Christian that causes a sense of doubt. One is an overactive conscience. Some of us have this melancholy kind of a personality. So we're, we're constantly down in ourselves and we're not good enough and God does not love us. And, and some of us, we, we have that disposition. So we read scripture and instead of being convicted by it, automatically we tend to be condemned by it. And John is saying, don't be this way. Don't. Others doubt in this way because of the fact that they are lacking in loving the brethren. <laughs> when you don't love your brother in Christ like you should, you will doubt your salvation like this. And others struggle with this doubt because of the false accusation of Satan. He is an accuser. So his goal is to accuse you, to tell you you're not good enough, to tell you that God doesn't love you, right? So we have those three reasons here. But John specifically is focusing on the lack of love for your brothers. How do you know this, Kevin? Well, look at verse 12 of chapter 3 and also verse 15. In verse 12, see for yourself, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was an evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because... His own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John thus far has been talking about how Christians struggle with loving one another. Some of them in the congregation were struggling with loving one another. And after he, he basically approached that, he tells him in verse 19, look, doubt is going to come. But don't allow condemnation to come. Allow conviction to come in your life. I've just shared with you of what you're struggling with. Do not allow the accuser to make you feel condemned, but allow the grace of God to convict you and lead you. This is exactly what he's doing here. So how do we fight Again, such doubt, John. 
Maybe some of you, you struggle with this tremendously. How do you fight against such doubt? And John gives us two reasons, two ways. One, by loving each other fervently. Make it your discipline. You know, we discipline as Christians to read, to fast, to pray, to give, to serve. Do we discipline to love? <laughs> we should. We should pray every day, God, teach me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Teach me to love others around me. Give me a greater love for people. Why, God? Why? Because you love people. Why, God? So that I won't doubt my salvation. I won't give anything to the accuser to use against me. So I love deeply. Come in closer and write this down if you can. If believers are demonstrating love by their actions, they will not constantly be wondering whether God will accept them. They will know it, and they can rest in that fact. And two, we must trust that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. So how can we not doubt? One, by loving people fervently. And two, by trusting that God is greater than my heart. That God knows all things. He's sovereign. That God will rescue me. I love this quote by John MacArthur. It was very carefully what he mentioned. Nevertheless, a believer may experience unnecessary guilt as his heart condemns him. But there is a higher court than the human heart. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Wow. Do you notice in the text what it mentions here? Look in your own Bibles and see for yourself. In verse 19, he says, very important phrase here. By this we shall know that we are of truth and reassure our hearts before him. For wherever our hearts, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. That phrase, God is greater than our hearts, people struggle with that because it, it was like, okay, what exactly is John saying? And there are two interpretations of what John is perhaps saying here. The first interpretation is some believe that here we see God consoling the believer's hearts or conscience that is condemned by sin. So, so when, when we feel condemned, God comes and he consoles our heart. And we see this throughout scripture. This is a principle. This is a biblical principle. This is what God does David, when, he, when he's on his bed at night and he's struggling with anxiety and depression, he talks about God's steadfast love coming as footprints, coming to rescue him. The psalmist, they talk about that often, how God visits them. His steadfast love rescues them. So this is true. The second option here as well is also true. What do you mean by this? 
Others think that the phrase, God is greater than our hearts, intensifies John's warning. In other words, God brings a sense of conviction to the believer's life. (laughs) So yes, he rescues, but yes, he brings conviction to our hearts that we don't gloss over sin. That the believer is constantly aware of sin. He confesses his sin, but God brings a sense of joy in his heart. You see it. Both of these truths are true. And perhaps exactly what John wants us to understand here. And what should believers do when the known accusations of their conscience consistently, consistently happens. What should they do? Should they ignore it? No. They should turn to God. They should be convicted because of sin in their hearts. And they should turn to God to find grace and mercy and not condemnation. This is what John is alluding to here. In other words, coming closer, and write this down if you can. God's voice of assurance is stronger than the accusing voice of conscience. You get it. This is what the believer should know. It's like a megaphone that constantly rings through his ears. The love of God, that God consistently shouts of his love and his mercy and his grace. This is what we need to saturate our lives in. But take a look at the second point. John moves naturally from doubt to confidence. Do you see it? We are given boldness in prayer through our love for one another. Friends, we see this in the texts altogether. Christians who remain guilt-ridden, unassured of their standing with God, without their hearts, at rest, will not want to draw near to God. Do you get it? If we struggle with doubt and sin in our hearts, we will not want to draw near to God. So here, John is saying this, cast away your doubt. Trust in the work of God, that God is greater than your heart, that God knows all things. Turn to God, and through that, there is this great confidence that happens. You see, doubt, friends, ceases when believers are walking in faithfulness and obedience because the heart does not condemn so that insecurity and fear will give way to confidence before God. And this is exactly what John is saying here. When doubt ceases, we find because believers are walking faithfully and obediently. So this is exactly what he's doing here. Now, I want you to observe with me very carefully is the word confidence that he mentions here. Don't miss this. He says that we ought to be confident. That there is a sense of confidence before God. And when I think of it, I think of a lot of athletes Great athletes, very talented athletes, whether it's basketball, whether it's soccer, whether it's football, or even golf. 
They start off by being incredible athletes. And all of a sudden, a year or two years, you hear nothing of them. It's not because they're not talented anymore. It's because they have no confidence. And this is especially true in golf. Some of the greatest golfers that I know of are struggling tremendously right now, and they will say to you the reason why is because we have no confidence. And it's exactly true for a Christian. When we have no confidence in God, not self, but in God, we struggle tremendously in our Christian life. The word confidence in the original language basically means boldness or freedom of speech. It describes the privilege of one coming before someone and openly speaking. It was a confidence that someone would have as they go before a king. It is a confidence that your children have when they approach you and they're asking for something. There is a sense of boldness. There is no fear at all. This confidence is what he's talking about here. A confidence in God. A confidence that God will accept us. A confidence that he will not cast us out. This is the same confidence mentioned in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the confidence. We go boldly to God in prayer. Why? Not because of anything good in us, but because of everything good in Christ. Because of his imputed righteousness that we as Christians, we have confidence. Why? There is no doubt that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are walking in obedience. So friends, listen very carefully to Zwingli's quote here. Our confidence in Christ does not make us lazy, <laughs> negligent, or careless. But on the contrary, it awakens us, urges us on, and makes us active in living righteous lives and doing good. There is no self-confidence to compare with this. He is absolutely right. This is the kind of confidence that we must have. A God confidence. And especially in our prayer life, right? So in the text, he mentions how we ought to pray. And there are two questions that we must ask ourselves, right? See, see, see with yourself in the text what John is saying here. See for yourself. Notice what he mentions here. In verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. From doubt to great confidence. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So stop. I like asking questions when I'm reading the Bible. And perhaps you are asking the same question. Question number one, does God answer prayers merely because I'm not doubting and I have a sense of confidence? In other words, will God answer my prayers simply because I'm coming boldly to his throne and God's going to give me whatever I ask for? This is the first question that we need to answer. Is John telling us that? 
The second question for me as I'm reading this is, will God give me whatever I ask for? Is God like my rich father who gives me whatever I want? Is God like a genie who gives me whatever I want? Is this what, is this, is, is this what John is saying to us here? God will give us whatever we want. Well, let me answer the first question. No. And the second question, no. <laughs> let me explain myself to you. Not because we come with great confidence and boldness that God will give us whatever we want. That's a subjective reason here. There is more of an objective reason, moral reason here that John wants us to understand. In other words, John wants you to observe that when you come before God and there is a sense of obedience and love, that God will grant our prayers. This is exactly what he's doing here. Notice with me in your own Bible, see for yourself. See what he mentions here in verse 21 again, especially in verse 22. And whatever you ask, receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This is what is centered on here, obedience. Answered prayers are conditioned in our obedience. Do you get it? The fact that we as Christians are obeying God's will and God's commandment that God in his sovereignty looks at our responsibility in the sense that we are obeying him and God chooses to grant us what we're praying for. We as Christians must learn obedience. We go to God and we ask and we ask and we ask, but then we are not willing to obey. That's a major problem. It's a major problem. John Stott says obedience is the indispensable condition of answered prayers. God desires for his people to obey. And we see the grace of God lavishing upon us because we are obeying our great God. They're connected, friends. They're connected. And I know, you know, we look at the sovereignty of God and we, we struggle. I don't have to do any of that. God will do whatever he wants to do. God will give me whatever he wants. Yes, God is sovereign, but God has also called for us to be responsible. And those two things are great friends in Scripture. They are. So we want to see God move mightily, obey his will. Obey his word. Obey his commandments. Where are you getting this from? This is exactly what John says to us here. We keep his commandments. What about the second question? Will God just give us whatever we want? This is exactly what John says. Whatever we want, God will give it to us. If I want a big car, God will give it to me. If I'm obeying God and, and I want a big house, he will give it to me. If I want a million dollars, he will give it to me. No, no. This command is very similar to that of John 15, 7, when Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The point here is abiding in Christ. When I abide in Christ, 
I ask for his will, not my will. He gives whatever I ask for as I'm abiding in him. And when I'm abiding in him, I ask what he wants me to ask for. Do you get it? Abiding in Christ is belonging to Christ, having the mind of Christ. So I will not ask for something that's not in Christ. And this is exactly what John does here as well. Notice very carefully what John does. He says, keep his commandments. He gives us whatever we ask for. If we keep his commandments, and I'm so glad John left this phrase in the text. And we please him. Do you see it? See for yourself. See for yourself. Let's read it again. He says it in verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Do you see it? When I, when I, when I please God, I will ask what God desires. I will ask what is biblical. I will ask the things of God. So this is not just asking whatever you want. It's whatever is pleasing to God. Let's go back to the analogy with our children. They come to us with great confidence. That's great. That's awesome. But you know, our children, when they come to us and they're asking things that they know without a doubt doesn't please us, there is no confidence. They put their head down. Dad, you know, I know I'm 14 years old. Uh, can, I, can I just drive your car around the block? Now, that has never happened. I'm just giving a far-fetched example. But, but you see, you see, th this is not in my will. This is not something that will please me. But if they come and they say, Dad, I, I know that Liam or I know that Silas or I know that Ezra is, is lacking in something. They, 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 they don't have this video game, but, but you know what? Can I give them my video game? Huh? That's pleasing to Dad. Dad, I want to go to the park to play with my friends. Can you please take me? That's pleasing to Dad. Do you get it? When it's pleasing to Dad, Dad is excited to lavish even more, more gifts upon you. And I'm just a human being, so how much more will our Heavenly Father, when we ask what is pleasing to Him, withhold from us? No, He will not. He will give. He will give. We ask whatever in the condition that we do his commandment and we do what pleases him. This is the problem here for us. We don't want to please God, but we want to ask God whatever. No. You ask what pleases him. This is what one commentator mentioned. I love this. Coming closer, pay close attention to this. The basis for answered prayer is not blind obedience, but a desire to please God with dedicated love. And God fulfills our requests because of the bond of love and fellowship between father and child. This is our God. Maybe we are praying the wrong way, praying for the wrong things. We must first pray, God, tell us and show us your will so that we can pray, pray what is pleasing to you. This is with great confidence. And finally, we are given a greater delight 
for obedience through our love for one another. See for yourself in verses 23 through 24 as we close. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he had commanded us. Stop. You notice here that he mentions faith in Jesus Christ. Believe. This is the word faith in the original language. That word is in the aorist tense, which basically means the past tense. Something happened in the past. So there was a point where you trusted in Jesus Christ, where he placed his imputed righteousness upon you. There was a sense of repentance and faith given. There's a a point of salvation or heart being changed. And this is what he's doing here. He's saying this happened in the past, and then there are continual effects. And what's the continual effect? It's the next thing he mentions. Love for one another. My salvation happened in the past, and my love for people is continuing every single day, pointing to my salvation, pointing to the work of Christ on my behalf. This is exactly what he's doing here. But notice very carefully, these two are inseparable. Faith and love are inseparable. We believe on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Not him as, not Jesus as a good person or a good teacher, but Jesus as human, full human, and fully divine. He is fully man, and he's fully God. You can't have just one of them. So the, here, John is saying, you believe in Jesus. You believe that he came to die on the cross for your sins. You believe that he resurrected from the grave. You believe that he ascended into heaven. You believe that he's ruling on high. That your faith is in Christ. And that faith is shown through your love for one another. What great truth that we have before us. And then he ends in verse 24 by giving us this mutual abiding. God abides in us. We abide in God. See for yourself, in verse 24, whoever keeps his commandment abides in God, God in him. Wow. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. God has given us the Holy Spirit to convict us, to lead us, to guide us. Bible says that we cry out, Abba, Father, because the Spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. God has given us the Spirit, friends, to help us, to lead us, to guide us, to convict us, to remind us of the love of God. So what do we do with this? We are called to love one another dearly, fervently, deeply. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to allow the culture to infiltrate your minds and say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm by myself. I don't care about anyone else. If this brother wrongs me, I am cutting him off. He's toxic to me. I am so tired of hearing this phrase, toxic. He is toxic to me. Over and over and over in this culture, I'm hearing this. If you have toxic people, cut them off, cut them off, cut them off. Maybe you're the toxic one. <laughs> Have you considered that? 
As a Christian, we're, we're called to work things out with people, to pray for people, problematic people. Pray for them. And God has brought them in your life to teach you humility. Not to just cut them off. To pray for them. They're made in the imago Dei of God, the image of God, and we're called to love. It's very easy to cut people off. But friends, I want to challenge you to love one another as Christ has loved you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. This is a challenging word for many of us because we do have problematic people in our lives. People that we try to forget. God, you've called us to love people and to pray for people. So please, God, teach us how to do this. God, we love you. We worship you. We thank you that you've given us a spirit so the Spirit can convict our hearts and lead us. When we feel condemned, I pray, Father, that we will be reminded of the love of Christ that's pursuing us. But thank you, thank you for your word. In your mighty and precious name, amen, amen.